there's no better feeling than a personal win. And the State Farm Personal Price Plan can help you do just that. Talk to a State Farm agent today to learn how you can bundle and save with the personal price plan. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Prices are based on rating plans that vary by state. Coverage options are selected by the customer. Availability, amount of discounts and savings, and eligibility vary by state. Due to the graphic nature of this murder case, listener discretion is advised. This episode includes dramatizations and discussions of murder and assault that some people may find offensive. We advise extreme caution for children under 13. Look out! Watch where you're driving. What is that maniac doing? He's going to get somebody killed driving like that. Look out! He's going to... He crashed! Sir? Are you okay? Help me. Please? Help me. Someone call the police! Yes, hello. I'm at Washington Boulevard. There's been an accident. I think the driver's hurt. Oh, God, he's bleeding. I think he's been stabbed. Please. Easy there. What happened to you? Who did this? Sir? Sir? I think he's dead. This is Unsolved Murders, True Crime Stories. I'm your host, Carter Roy. And I'm your host, Wendy McKenzie. This is our episode on David Bacon, an up-and-coming actor who was murdered in 1943. You can listen to previous episodes of Unsolved Murders, as well as all of ParCast's other shows, wherever you listen to podcasts. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. Some listeners have been asking how they can help support the show. If you enjoy the podcast, the best way to do that is to leave a five-star review online. On September 12, 1943, a car swerved and crashed near a bean farm in Venice, California. A man, shirtless, wearing nothing but a pair of shorts, stumbled out of the vehicle and collapsed. He was bleeding from a knife wound in his back, and he died before the ambulance arrived. The victim would soon be identified, David Bacon, a 29-year-old actor who had just wrapped the popular serial, The Masked Marvel. An investigation into the murder revealed a potential double life, but no murderer. 75 years after the fact, we still don't know who killed David Bacon. After police arrived on the scene, they were able to identify David from the driver's license in his wallet they found that his car was registered to his wife, Greta Keller. Hello? Greta Keller? Speaking. Who's this? You're Greta Keller of 8444 Magnolia Avenue, the singer. Who are you? This is Detective Harry Fremont, LAPD. I'm afraid there's been an accident. An accident? Your car. We have you as the registered owner of a maroon British sports car, right? Yes, but David, my husband, He took it today when he left the house. Has something happened? I'm sorry, ma'am. Your husband is dead. Publicly, David Bacon was a rising star, the lead in a hit serial, and the lucky spouse of Greta Keller, a famous singer and actress. 
However, the investigation into his murder revealed that David Bacon was a man of many secrets, and that one of those secrets might have led to his death. David Bacon was born Gaspar Griswold Bacon, Jr. on March 14, 1914, in Barnstable, Massachusetts. The Bacons were one of the Boston Brahmin families, which is a fancier way of saying that they were old money rich. The Boston Brahmin was a collective of old money, upper crust families in Boston. Talk about a coastal elite. David came from a long line of influential men. His grandfather, Robert Bacon, served as Secretary of State under President Theodore Roosevelt and as the United States Ambassador to France during William Howard Taft's administration. His father, Gaspar Bacon Sr., was a Harvard-educated lawyer, an officer in the First World War, and a co-founder of Harvard's famed military school. He was active in politics and served as a state senator and lieutenant governor for Massachusetts. There's not much written about what David Bacon's relationship was with his father, but we do know that he was granted the same opportunities in youth that his father had. Namely, David enjoyed a college education from Harvard University and spent many summers with his family on their expansive beach home in Cape Cod. As a teenager, David performed with the University Players, a summer stock theater based near Cape Cod. It was there that he first showed an interest and an aptitude for acting. David continued to act through college as part of Harvard's theater group, The Hasty Pudding. When he graduated, he fully intended to become a professional actor. Unfortunately, one thing that will become painfully clear in this episode is that most accounts of David Bacon's life are full of inaccuracies and contradictions. These inconsistencies came because David was gay or possibly bisexual, or, as his wife and widow, Greta Keller, put it, decades after his death, We were both on the sexual spectrum. In the 1930s and 40s, society as a whole was severely more restrictive when it came to sexual preference. This caused all sorts of nasty and baseless rumors to spawn about Bacon that have grown with time, as these unfounded stories have been repeated again and again. Some were relatively mundane, while others were much more vicious. But no matter how extreme they were, one thing was clear. David's sexual preference has prevented us from having a clear and verifiable account of his life. A more egregious example of the rumors that circulated the life of David Bacon comes after he graduated Harvard in 1937 and moved to New York City. David hoped to break into the off-Broadway circuit, but he was finding this rather difficult. Hello. My name is Gaspar Bacon Jr., and I'm reading for the part of... Because of these struggles, there has been speculation that in order to make money and keep himself afloat, Bacon moonlighted as a gigolo. The only apparent reason for this claim is that David was known to wear expensive clothes during his time in New York. The son of a rich politician wearing expensive clothes. How odd that must have seemed. (laughs) While these rumors clearly stem from a deep-seated bigotry... The fact that David was either gay or bisexual would end up playing an integral part in the investigation of his murder. Now, it's not uncommon for the children of uber-wealthy families to go into show business. Army Hammer, Rashida Jones, and the Mara sisters are just a few current examples. David came from a wealthy family and was the son of a prominent politician. It's not a stretch of the imagination to assume that his peers expected great things from him. 
By the 1940s, acting was considered more legitimate as a career option than it had been during the days of the vaudeville circuit. But you still have to wonder what David's prominent father thought of his career ambitions, especially as his first attempts at breaking into the industry were met with failure. Bacon never found success as an actor in New York City, and after two short years, he relocated to Los Angeles in 1939 at the age of 25. Two things happened that year to David Bacon. One would define the rest of his short life, and the other would come to define him years after his death. Sometime in 1939, David Bacon got a screen test. Oh my, who is that? Hmm, name Gaspar Bacon Jr., newcomer. Oh, now that's no name for a movie star to have. Well, there's a number of conflicting accounts about who discovered David Bacon. In one story, the actress Ginger Rogers happened to see David's screen test. Since it was also around this time that Bacon changed his stage name from Gaspar to David, the story surmises that Rogers might have been the one to suggest it. There's no proof that this story is true, but it is very likely that this screen test was what eventually led to David Bacon's future film roles. That's because shortly after he tested, David Bacon was forced to leave Hollywood. In 1939, a 15-year-old newsboy came to David's home to collect money for his paper subscription. David opened the door wearing nothing but an oversized pajama top. He invited the boy inside and started to make sexual advances towards him. The newsboy left before anything happened, but he later told his father, who reported David to the police. Open up. Yes? What's the matter? Gaspar Bacon. I go by David now. I'm an actor. Yeah, yeah, well, David, you're under arrest for contributing to the delinquency of a minor. At this time, same-sex relationships were punishable by law. People who were caught could be charged with delinquency. David's case was not as serious as it could have been. Both he and the newsboy testified that nothing had actually happened since the newsboy left before David was able to do anything. David was emphatically regretful at his hearing, which likely led the judge to go easy on him. Mr. Bacon, do you have anything to say in your defense? I just... I don't know what came over me. Really, please believe me, I'm not like that. David was convincing at his court hearing, and so the judge gave him a suspended sentence, on the condition that David leave California and not return for three years. This is why we generally believe that David's 1939 screen test was significant in getting him future film work. David Bacon was not around Hollywood after that test, so it would have been the only thing to consider when casting him. David left Hollywood in 1939. There is one account that claims he only traveled to the nearby city of Santa Barbara to lay low. However, there's no corroborating evidence of this. Whether David left the state of California or not, he did not stay away for the full three years. He returned to Hollywood in either late 1941 or early 1942 for the filming of his first movie role in Ten Gentlemen from West Point. It was a small role, but for Bacon, it was worth breaking his court order and returning to Hollywood to shoot the movie. The film was released in the summer of 1942, and it ultimately failed to recoup its budget at the box office. That was likely good for Bacon. If the movie had been a huge hit, the judge who sentenced him to leave California might have seen it and realized what was going on. But for David, that chapter of his life seemed to be in the past. Ten Gentlemen from West Point kicked off David Bacon's short-lived career as a film actor, 
After a delay caused by his sentencing, David Bacon was back in Hollywood and ready to begin his film career in earnest. He was intent on becoming the next big leading man. And he actually might have, if he had lived. We'll find out just how close he was to a breakthrough after a brief message. This episode is brought to you by Anytime Fitness. Forget dark alleys and cemeteries. For some, the gym is the scariest place of all. But it doesn't have to be. With a personalized plan and expert coaching, Anytime Fitness can help make the gym less frightening. Get more for your gym membership than machines. Get personalized support anytime, anywhere. Visit anytimefitness.com to try it for free today. Terms, conditions, and restrictions apply. See website for details. Now, back to the story. In 1942, after years of failing to make it as an actor, 28-year-old David Bacon played a small part in the film Ten Gentlemen from West Point. David's next step would have been to secure another, hopefully larger, role in a new movie to build up credits on the path to become a Hollywood leading man. At six foot two with sandy hair and sharp features, Bacon fit in with the ideal of what a Hollywood leading man was supposed to look like in the 1940s. One of the most famous stories about David Bacon takes place on a fateful night when a certain billionaire producer spotted him at a bar and realized he might have discovered the next great leading man. Who is this? Russell, it's Howard Hughes. Call off the search for Billy the Kid. I found him last night. In the 2005 biography of eccentric movie mogul Howard Hughes, Howard Hughes, Hell's Angel, Darwin Porter recounts the story of Hughes' discovery of Bacon while in the process of casting 1943's The Outlaw, a biopic western about Billy the Kid. Hughes' chance encounter with David Bacon seems a little far-fetched. He was sitting alone in the Cock and Bull bar on Sunset. He was having a drink and looking sad. I came up to him. He knew immediately who I was. When I found out he was an actor, I asked if he'd submitted his picture for Billy the Kid. He told me he didn't see himself playing in a Western on account of his accent. I told him I could hire a diction coach. I also told him I was signing him to a three-year contract. We're going to bill him as the handsomest man in Hollywood. Porter claims Howard Hughes brought David in to read for Billy the Kid. Bacon ultimately didn't test well, and the part went instead to Jack Butel. But Hughes liked Bacon enough to keep him on contract and cast him in smaller roles in other films. Bacon grew more and more frustrated with the lack of substantial roles, and this led Hughes to loan him out to Republic Pictures, which produced the Masked Marvel series, for which David is best known. There's a lot wrong with this account. There's nothing quite like a story cooked up by Hollywood publicists, or in this case, by authors looking to feed a public desire for scandalous stories about famous people. Darwin Porter's biography of Hughes has been thoroughly criticized for numerous inaccuracies and straight-up falsehoods, and his account of David Bacon's role in Hughes' life is no exception. First, the timing just doesn't add up. The first printed announcement of casting for The Outlaw was published on November 18, 1940, and reported that Walter Houston had been cast as Doc Holliday. A week later, on November 25, 1940, it was reported that Jack Butel and Jane Russell had been cast as the leads in the film. David Bacon was almost certainly not in Los Angeles in 1940. He wasn't even in the state of California or at least he wasn't supposed to be, per the judge's order on his delinquency charge. 
Well, it is, of course, possible that David Bacon returned to California and was living anonymously from the law at the time that Howard Hughes was casting the outlaw. It seems more likely that the entire story of Hughes discovering Bacon never actually happened. Actually, it's more likely that Hughes and Bacon never even knew each other at all. This story persists as another unfortunate consequence of baseless rumors. In the decades following David's death, a rumor would grow that Howard Hughes might have had a hand in the murder. Conspiracy theory coverage of this unsolved case posits that Hughes and David were lovers, and David was trying to blackmail Hughes in order to secure more prominent film roles. In retaliation, Hughes had David killed. The nature of David Bacon's murder, and the fact that it remains unsolved today, invites conspiracy theorists to look for connections where none exists. As if the only reason a murder could go unsolved is if it was somehow tied to one of the most powerful men in Hollywood at that time. Even without the influence of the powerful Howard Hughes, things started to look up for David Bacon after his return to Hollywood. In 1942, he married Greta Keller, a famous actress and singer. This was significant for a number of reasons. Greta Keller was richer and more famous than David Bacon, by a long shot. Additionally, she was 11 years older than him. He was 28 and she was 39. Their relationship stood out in a world where male stars tended to go for women who were much younger than they were. Near the end of her life, Greta Keller would claim that her marriage to David Bacon was a lavender marriage, a union established to present the image that they were both heterosexual, when in reality, both Greta Keller and David Bacon were either gay or bisexual. This was not uncommon at the time, especially in show business. Keller was already famous, and David Bacon had his eyes set on being a movie star. In the 1940s, even being suspected of being gay could be a career-ending scandal. However, it's likely that David and Greta did have some affinity for one another. This is evidenced by the fact that, by the fall of 1943, Greta was pregnant with David's child. The two lived in a mansion on Lookout Mountain, and David would often make the long drive across town so they could go for a swim in the ocean. That, apparently, was his plan on the day of his murder. Hurry up, honey. I told you. The doctor said that with the pregnancy, I shouldn't be swimming. I just want to stay in today. Well, if that's the case, I can think of something else we could do. I'm not really in the mood. Come on. I said no. You always get so fussy when you don't get your way. Fine. I'll go by myself. On September 12, 1943, David Bacon left his house, frustrated because he had wanted to have sex and Greta wasn't in the mood. He drove from their Lookout Mountain mansion across Hollywood, all the way to Venice Beach. David and Greta would often swim at the beach house of his friend, actress Geraldine Spreckles. Presumably, that's where he was headed when he left his house. While David might have made it to the beach that day, he did not show up at Geraldine's. Just after 5 p.m., David was spotted driving his car erratically on Washington Boulevard in Venice. He hopped a curb, crashed, and when bystanders ran to the wreck, they discovered David shirtless, bleeding from a knife wound in his back. He was dead within minutes. Police arrived on the scene, and detectives followed soon after. There was nothing conventional about David Bacon's murder. In the following days and weeks, investigators would uncover a web of clues, including a secret code, a mysterious hideout, and an item that may have belonged to the killer. 
To this day, no evidence has helped investigators pinpoint the identity of David Bacon's murderer. Uh Uh-huh. We're on our way. What's up? Grab your hat. We're going to the beach. Someone dead? Actor. David Bacon. Huh. He in anything I would have seen? Late in the afternoon on September 12, 1943, LAPD detectives Harry Fremont and Lloyd Hurst arrived on the scene of a car crash at the intersection of Washington and Thatcher Avenue in Venice. Once there, the detectives got to work. What'd you see? Well, he crashed the car, staggered out, around 15 feet, I'd guess. He was kicking and squirming, and I, and I asked him who had done it. But before he could say anything... That sweater under his head, that his? No, that's mine. I put it there after... Well, should I not have done that? Well, you just might have contaminated the crime scene. The first officers on the scene had already identified Bacon from the driver's license in his wallet. They had found his address and reached out to Greta to tell her the tragic news. What are you thinking? First guess? Poor Sap picked up a hitchhiker somewhere between the hills and here. That's who did it. Highway robber? Could be. Detectives! Look what we found in his wallet. Ten, eleven, he's got thirteen dollars in here. And those rings on his hand don't look cheap either. The initial suspicion was that David had been killed by a hitchhiker. In the following days, Greta and David's other friends would confirm that David had a habit of giving strangers rides when traveling between his house and the beach. But as evidence started to pile up, the idea that David Bacon had been killed by a stranger started to lose validity. For one, David's wallet had $13 in it when he was murdered. That's almost $200 in today's money. If he had been killed by a random hitchhiker, wouldn't the murderer have robbed him as well? The inside of David's car was soaked with blood, but the outside was spotless. This indicated that David had been inside the car when he was stabbed. Okay, tally it up. Wallet, cash, this key. House key? No, we already found a house key. This is for something else. Okay. Bloody robe in the back seat. Any holes, cuts? Hard to tell, but looks like no. I don't think he was wearing it whenever he got stabbed. Whoa, what's that? Oh, this may be the best part. He had a camera. We need to get that film developed ASAP. Witness statements provided two conflicting accounts of what David Bacon was doing in the minutes leading up to his death. One witness saw Bacon driving with a woman and was unable to provide any details about the woman. Another account stated that Bacon was driving with a, quote, dark-skinned man, and that Bacon was not wearing a shirt. Well, while it's hard to guess who's right and who's wrong in this case, one thing is for sure. Someone was in the car with Bacon. By the end of the first day of the investigation, police had a few leads to track down. In David's wallet, the detectives had discovered a key that was not for David's house. There was a blood-stained bathrobe that had been laid out in the back seat of the car. Examination showed that there was no knife tear in the fabric, meaning that David had likely been shirtless when he was stabbed. The sheer amount of blood on the robe also indicated that David had either been in the back seat or was in the process of climbing into the back seat when he was injured. There was a camera that the detectives immediately sent to a lab to see if any pictures had been taken. Finally, there was a sweater that was too small to have been David's. The hairs found on the sweater were blonde, which seemed to contradict the earlier witness account that David had been driving with a dark-skinned man. 
what police didn't find at the scene was a murder weapon. The autopsy report indicated that David had been stabbed by some kind of small blade, like a stiletto. The angle of the wound established that David and his attacker had been facing one another and that David had been bending over. This would corroborate the possibility that David was climbing into the back seat when he was stabbed. The knife had cut his heart and punctured his lung, which caused a hemorrhage. Doctors and police confirmed that a man with that kind of injury could live for up to 20 minutes before he died, meaning David could have been stabbed quite a ways away from where he crashed the car. In the 1940s, the area around Venice Beach and Santa Monica was essentially rural. There was the beach, beach houses, and some farms, and not much else. You could cover a lot of ground by car in 20 minutes. Without witness reports, finding the spot where David was actually stabbed would be impossible. By the time David crashed the car and actually died, his murderer could have been miles away. And even as police widened their search and found new evidence, they never got closer to the elusive killer. Oh, detectives. Come in. Detectives Fremont and Hearst, ma'am. Again, I'm sorry for your loss. We were hoping we might be able to take a look at his personal effects to get any sense of who might have done this. Take whatever you need. On September 15th, police searched David's room. There, they found a diary. Hey, what's this? That's some other language? I can't make any sense of it. It's like some kind of code. Newspapers at the time made a lot out of this mystery, and yet to this day, the code has never been cracked. Actually, no pictures of the diary or its coded pages exist at all. There are conflicting accounts about Greta's role in decoding the diary, with some reporting that Greta helped the detectives look through the other books in their home to try and indicate a way to crack the code. Another account quotes Greta as saying that, I was not allowed to see the diary, but I knew about it. It was kept in my husband's bedroom. Why would she say her husband's bedroom and not our bedroom? Well, if their marriage was one of convenience, maybe they had separate bedrooms. We also have to consider that Greta Keller was likely not in the best state of mind to give statements in the aftermath of her husband's death. When Greta Keller received word of her husband's death, she collapsed. Keller was 40 years old, five months pregnant, and she'd already been facing a number of health complications to her pregnancy before the murder. When she first heard the news, she allegedly went into shock. In the days following the murder, Dr. William Benjamin Bacon, David's brother, flew to Los Angeles to claim the body and return it to Boston for the funeral. Greta was still in bad shape and William gave her sedatives. The medication combined with the shock of the murder and her pre-existing health issues caused her baby to be stillborn. So her account of what really happened with the coded diary shouldn't be taken as fact. What interests me about this is that everybody who talks about this case seems to know about the coded diary, and yet other than news articles from the time, there's no physical or photographic proof that the diary even existed. I mean, where did it go after the case was closed? Today, the story of David Bacon's diary is significant in that it indicates he had a secret life that he didn't want people, including his wife, to know about. Beyond that... Well, it was never decoded and likely never will be. But the diary wasn't the only revelation police received from visiting Greta. She was also able to provide some more context to what David was doing on the day that he died. I'll need to find someone to take care of the dogs. They were David's. He 
loved them. He even took them with him every time he went swimming. But he didn't that day? No. I woke up from my nap and I saw that the dogs were still here. David always took them when he went to the beach. Greta's account of the last time she saw her husband definitely paints a picture of someone who is trying to keep a low profile. David had wanted to go to the beach with Greta. Greta, citing health concerns over her pregnancy, chose not to go. David considered staying, but left after Greta rejected his sexual advances. Presumably, he went to the beach alone, but he left behind his three dogs. Greta placed David's departure time at around 2 in the afternoon. He crashed his car and died around 5 p.m. When David's body was examined, sand was found on his legs and feet, indicating that he had gone to the beach that day after all. So why didn't he take his dogs? And more importantly, did he go anywhere else in the hours between leaving the house and his death? The answer revealed a new layer to the secret life of David Bacon. We'll uncover more about these secrets in just a moment. Now, back to the story. What can I do for you? Dr. Charles Hendricks. That's me. We're with the LAPD. We'd like to talk to you about one of your tenants. While the investigation was getting nowhere with David Bacon's coded diary, the detectives found another piece of the puzzle that was David Bacon's private life. On September 18th, they finally discovered the meaning behind David's mystery key. The key found in David's wallet turned out to be for an apartment on Kirkwood Avenue in Los Angeles, barely a mile away from David and Greta's house. David had rented the small studio apartment on August 31st, 1943, from Dr. Charles Hendricks. So, this is the spot. It's not much, but rent's cheap. Did you know Mr. Bacon lived in a house just around the corner from here? I guessed he lived nearby. He didn't stay here, as far as I can tell. Then why did he rent it? He said it was for a friend. A friend. The implication here is that Bacon, like many actors looking to keep their infidelities out of the public eye, had rented the apartment for a mistress. Well, this theory was supported by the fact that when detectives first investigated the unit, they found women's purses, cigarette holders, and scraps of fabric that seemed to have been cut from a woman's shirt. Hendricks stated that he'd assumed David was keeping the unit for a woman, but the only person he encountered in the unit, other than David, was a man. On September 10th, just two days before David's death, Hendricks went to the apartment to collect the rent money. Inside, he found David with a dark, slight, foreign-looking man. This man did not introduce himself to Hendricks, and David did not offer up a name. Amazingly, the detectives were actually able to track down one Harry Frazee, a radio producer who confirmed that he had lived in the unit for four days. Police brought him in for an interview on September 19th. I'd just come in from New York and I found an ad offering up a place. I went by, met David, and he said I could stay there in exchange for work. I figured it would be a good spot to rest up while I looked for jobs and found a more permanent place. What kind of work? Gardening, I think. I never did it. I got a radio job and moved over to a spot on Sunset. So, David Bacon rents an apartment a mile away from his house. He then immediately turns around and sublets that apartment to a radio producer for four days. Frazee explained he had two friends, both of whom were women, help him move in. In doing so, one of his friends, Phyllis Parker, left her cigarette holders in the apartment. 
It's still odd that David would keep those around, even after Frizee had moved out. Not as odd as someone taking the trouble to ask friends to move into an apartment and then vacating after just four days. Well, we don't know if the detectives were aware of the delinquency charge from 1939. That incident wasn't commonly known until 1944, when writer Peter Levins mentioned it in a retrospective on David Bacon's unsolved murder. It's possible, given that David had a history of coming on to people, that he tried something with Frizee which led Frizee to vacate the apartment so quickly. Frizee would have had every reason not to say anything, so as not to be associated with a scandal. There was a lot that was suspicious about Frizee's place in this story. Naturally, he was a suspect, as detectives assumed he was the mysterious man that Hendricks had seen with David in the apartment on September 10th. But when they showed Hendricks a picture of Frizee, the police received some shocking news. Dr. Hendricks, was this the man you saw that day? No. The guy I saw was younger. The story around the secret apartment kept getting stranger and stranger, especially when it turned out the apartment was not so secret. When asked, Greta Keller confirmed that she knew about the apartment. She stated that David had rented it so that it could serve as lodgings for their gardener. As far as police could tell, the Bacons did not, nor did they ever, have a gardener in 1943. But they might have almost had one. Police traced a phone number found in David's personal belongings to one Glenn Irwin Shom. Yeah, that's him. Charles Hendricks confirmed that Shom was the man he saw in David's apartment on September 10th. Shom was a 20-year-old Navy deserter who lived with his wife on Van Ness Avenue when police tracked him down. He stated that he was at the apartment that day because he was responding to an ad David had placed to look for a gardener. So he was married and he already had a place, but he responded to an ad that included lodging? Weird. <laughs> Very. But then again, maybe Sean was looking for more than just a chance to work as a gardener. After he was interrogated by the police, Sean was turned over to the local Navy office to face charges for his desertion. Meanwhile, the investigation looked into two of the other pieces of evidence. As the story goes, the camera found in Bacon's car came back with a single picture of David Bacon, nude on a beach. Uh, now, here's the thing. This evidence that seems to indicate that David Bacon spent his last hours with a lover who ultimately killed him might be a hoax. We mentioned earlier how it was strange that David Bacon's coded diary was only written about in newspaper articles at the time and that no pictures exist. Well, in the case of this camera and the nude photograph, there actually was not even written evidence that this was ever a part of the investigation. What seems more likely is that, like the bogus account of David's relationship with Howard Hughes, this part of the story was repeated so often that it eventually was considered a fact of the case. I have to admit, in a case as weird as this one, a mystery camera certainly seems like something that it would have turned up. Over and over in our research for the subject, we found facts that are presented as being true without any provided sources to back up the claim. One piece of evidence that was real, however, was the sweater found in Bacon's car. David Bacon was a large man, over six feet tall. The sweater was several sizes too small for him. The blonde hairs found on the sweater further complicated the evidence. Assuming that the owner of the sweater was the person who stabbed David Bacon, then the hairs might rule out Sham and Frazee, who both had dark hair. 
Further investigations showed that the sweater was the same style and material as one that had been given to student athletes at the nearby Venice High School. So the sweater could have belonged to a minor. Well, maybe, but not likely. That particular kind of sweater hadn't been issued in five years. It's more likely that whoever owned it had the sweater for some time, or they just picked it up secondhand. But that at least could have helped them narrow down the suspects. It could have. But as far as the records show, investigators never looked for graduates of that school who might have been associated with David Bacon. Even though investigators were able to track the sweater back to its source, they had no luck in finding out who it belonged to. If they did, anything they found has long been erased from record. So, by September 20th, the detectives had a diary they couldn't read, a murder weapon they couldn't find, a secret apartment they couldn't justify, and a sweater that didn't fit any of the people who might have been a suspect. All the while, the newspapers were eating up any tidbit of information that might shed light on the murder. Well, the tabloid-level journalism is probably what led to what happened next. On September 20th, 1943, the Los Angeles Examiner ran a story that claimed to shed light on David Bacon's murder. Hello? Blakely, it's David Bacon. I've received a note demanding money. Money? For what? I don't know what to make of it. Can I see you about it? One Blakely C. Patterson contacted the Los Angeles Examiner and stated that David Bacon had confided in him that he was being blackmailed. The police reoriented their search and sought to find this mystery man that was trying to blackmail David before the murder. And they brought in Blakely C. Patterson for questioning. David called you when? Saturday. Paper said Sunday. Uh, That's right. So which is it? Saturday or Sunday? Uh, Sunday. You knew David Bacon? Yes. I'm an actor, too. I knew him. You're an actor? Been in anything good? Well, no. I'm more trying to get my first role. So you haven't acted in anything? No, not yet. I... Why'd you go to the papers and not the police first? I thought it would be helpful if the truth was out there. David Bacon's been all over the papers. His picture. You could have come to the police with this information. Now, this blackmailer, whoever he is, he might get away. I'm sure you won't let that happen. Yeah. How long did you say you knew David Bacon for again? I... I just... Well, I... Oh, God. Something you want to get off your chest? I made it up. God help me, I made it up. Blakely Patterson folded pretty quickly under police questioning. He admitted that he had made the whole thing up. He had hoped that getting his picture in the paper and being associated with a real-life Hollywood mystery might help get him a publicist and launch a film career. His plan did the opposite. Blakely Patterson served 10 days in jail and was then released on the condition that he did not return to California. He returned home to Minnesota. He never got a role in a movie. One fake story made by someone hoping to get famous is usually enough in most cases. But not in the case of David Bacon. Some days after Patterson was sent to jail, around the beginning of October 1943, Charles Weil was taken into custody by the Santa Monica Police Department. Weil had been arrested on a charge of attempted assault. By all accounts, he was drunk when they brought him into the station. And Bacon, too. I killed David Bacon, stabbed him right in the back. Fremont and Hearst cross-checked Weil's statement and found it to be laughably inaccurate. Weil himself recanted his confession, claiming he was drunk and not in control of what he was saying. 
He was released on October 15, 1943. Charles Weil was the last person to be interviewed by the police on suspicion of having something to do with the murder of David Bacon. The last article that covered the murder of David Bacon in its immediate aftermath was published on October 16, 1943, just over a month after the murder. In today's world of non-stop celebrity coverage, it's hard to believe that there was a time when the murder of a famous Hollywood actor would disappear from the public eye so quickly. But at this time, newspapers were generally squeamish about overcovering violent crimes. The average American reader didn't want to read about such dismal things. The case had gone cold, at least in the eyes of the LAPD. But did it have to? We obviously can't speak to the minds of the detectives tasked with solving the crime. But there seems to have been quite a few loose threads left in the wake of this investigation. What stands out as truly odd is that no one involved in the investigation seems to have made the effort to put together a timeline, even if that timeline would be hypothetical at best. Here is one potential explanation for what happened that day. David was in the midst of an affair with one or more people. It's likely this person was a man. On September 12, 1943, frustrated by his wife's rejection of his advances, David left his home without his dogs and either drove to his second apartment to pick someone up or met them later on in Venice. They went swimming together and David either lost his shirt or it was taken by the other person. At some point closer to five, David laid out the robe in the back seat, presumably, so that he and the other person could have sex. While David was leaning over the front seat of the car to climb into the back, the other person stabbed him in the back. The murderer then fled without sticking around to make sure that David was really dead. After the cause of death was revealed, the mortician noted that someone with David's wound might be able to live up to 20 minutes after being stabbed, David, in pain and delirious from blood loss, got back in the front seat and started to drive. He crashed the car and died before he could get himself to a hospital. Most of the narrative of David Bacon is generally hung up on the idea that he maintained affairs with men, even though we can't identify any of these men. If David had other lovers that might have known something about what he was doing on that day, they were likely prevented from coming forward by the societal taboos of the time. One thing that really doesn't add up here is why more work wasn't done to find out who was in the car with David on that day. As we've stated, one witness believed he saw David driving with his shirt off with a woman. And while Phyllis Parker explained the cigarette holders in the apartment, no explanation was ever found for the purses or women's clothing found there. There's some suspicion that David may have been carrying out a tryst with a male and female couple, but again, at this point, we're mostly dealing in guesswork that is only viable because of how much we don't know about what happened. One final possibility is that David was killed in an act of homophobic violence. This was, and tragically still is, a common occurrence where a gay man is lured by someone pretending to be interested and then murdered. It also might explain why so much of this investigation was left undone. Crimes against gay men were common, and they often went unsolved due to police apathy. I know we thought we'd ruled out the hitchhiker angle, but I'll be honest, I really feel like David Bacon played fast and loose with his life. I think he offered a ride to someone he shouldn't have, and that person killed him. Well, for me, I think it runs deeper than that. 
David was involved with something or someone. He was almost certainly having affairs. I think someone he knew wanted to kill him, and because of how well he kept his secrets, we'll likely never know who that someone was. The case of David Bacon is fascinating, both because of how many unanswered questions there are, and how it's generally vanished from the memory of Hollywood. Perhaps that's because, at this point, it seems likely that David Bacon's murder will remain unsolved forever. You can find Unsolved Murders and all of ParCast podcasts on Apple Podcasts, Stitcher, Google Play, CastBox, TuneIn, and your favorite podcast directory. A new episode comes out every Tuesday. You can also find us on Facebook and Instagram at ParCast and on Twitter at ParCast Network. And if you enjoy the podcast, the best way to support us is by leaving a five-star review online. Thank you so much for listening. We'll see you next time. If we live till next time. Unsolved Murders True Crime Stories was created by Max Cutler and developed by Ron Cutler. It is a production of Cutler Media and is part of the ParCast Network. It is produced by Max and Ron Cutler, sound designed by Ron Shapiro, with production assistance by Paul Mahler. Additional production assistance by Maggie Admire and Carly Madden. Unsolved Murders is written by Colin McLaughlin and stars Carter Roy and Wendy McKenzie. The amazing cast of voice actors includes, by alphabetical order, Mike Capozzi, Jerry Courtney Austin, Harris Markson, Steve Pinto, and Daniel Velasquez. 